Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. The formation of planets is full of mysteries, including planets that don't end up with a home. Now, across our universe, there are these strange interstellar objects called rogue planets that wander through the universe without a star to call their own. And these are unusual to detect, but we can learn a lot from them. Plus, by studying glass inside meteorites, we can learn a lot about the actual formation of planets inside our very own solar system. We've gotten used to the discovery of many more planets hurtling around in space. It used to be that we only knew about the planets in our solar system, the nine or so planets, and, and then of course our understanding of our solar system deepened and changed. And not only do we have the planets in our solar system, but we've also got the dwarf planets and then of course the trans-Neptunium objects and things lurking out in the Cupia belt. So our solar system is much more complex than we thought maybe 30, 40 years ago. Now this is only true not just for our solar system, but also solar systems across the universe, because we've discovered, after theorising for quite a while, many exoplanets, planets orbiting stars in other solar systems. And of course, if we can find planets out there, then there's probably also some strange things going on with planets that we don't know about. Planets that aren't easy to observe and rationalise in our own solar system's understanding. That is to say, planets that don't orbit a star. Now, it's been theorised for a long time that there would be these so-called orphan or nomad planets, planets that are wandering from star to star, travelling through the universe, created at one point and then perhaps flung away and closer to home. This is a fate that awaits even planets in our own solar system. In around 5 billion years from now, as our sun gets colder, older and less mass-filled, it won't be able to hold on to planets in the outermost regions of its orbit. Things like Neptune, Uranus, Pluto, even the dwarf planets out in the Cupia belt. These will be cast away, drifting off into interstellar space. That is a fate that awaits planets in our solar system. But it's likely also happened in plenty of other cases across the universe. Now, detecting these rogue planets is no easy feat. Scientists have recently developed really sophisticated techniques for finding exoplanets, planets orbiting another star, because we can use this varying changes in brightness as a star moves with its planet across the night sky. And we can see it changing as a planet comes in front and then disappears, comes in front and then disappears. This periodic nature of it makes it actually really easy to observe, and that's why we're so good now at finding exoplanets, because we have really good techniques and it's actually pretty easy to do once you know where to look. Now, that works great for something with a nice stable periodic orbit, but a rogue planet doesn't have that. A rogue planet doesn't have a nice ticking clock-like motion around a large star. It's passing through large regions of space. You can use similar techniques like gravitational lensing, micro-lensing, but it doesn't quite work exactly the same way because, well, you're not looking for something repeatedly. You have to luck out and find a really simple way of watching something journey across the night sky. But that doesn't mean it's impossible. Difficult, yes, but not impossible to detect rogue planets. Now, the technique used here is a gravitational lensing effect called microlensing. Basically, a really heavy, large object, this is called the lens, bends the light of a bright background object 
the source. Now, when this happens, you can change the brightness of that background object, either generating increased brightness or perhaps even distorted or magnified images as the light gets bent and shaped around this massive object. Now, this massive object could be a lot of things. It could be a star passing in front of another star. This happens all the time in our field of view here from Earth. But it could also be something that doesn't have any intrinsic brightness of its own, like a dwarf planet. Now the bump might be fainter to see and you need lots of images over time and to actually pick this up, but it's possible to detect these transitions as they are. And there are several research groups and telescopes that are designed exactly for doing just this, including one to be launched by NASA, which is the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope. But using the current instruments available today, telescopes scattered across the world, from research groups tied to the European Southern Observatory. Researchers published in the journal Nature, a really large study where they have found what they say is at least 70 new rogue planets. These are planets that do not have a star that they call home, planets that are wandering like nomads across our galaxy, specifically 70 new rogue planets in the Milky Way. This is pretty much the largest group of rogue planets that have ever been discovered. And it's a really interesting thing to think about because it helps us understand how planets in general are formed, let alone planets across the universe. Physicist Takahiro Sumi of Osaka University of Japan and their colleagues formed the Microlensing Observations in Astrophy group and they published a lot of paper on microlensing. They looked at around 50 million stars across the Milky Way using a relatively small telescope, a 1.8 meter MOA 2 telescope in New Zealand. And what they saw across this 50 million star sample of the Milky Way was around 474 incidents of microlensing. Now, just because you see an evidence of microlensing doesn't mean it's a planet. Now, 10 of them that they saw were brief enough to be planets of around Jupiter's size with no real matching star nearby that it could be orbiting. So this could be Jupiter-sized rogue planets. And based on this, they formed an estimate that said, well, there's probably somewhere around two Jupiter-sized rogue planets for every star in the Milky Way. Now, that's a crazy huge number if you think about it, because there's many, many stars in the Milky Way. And this suggests that there's way more rogue planets than stars. Now, if you were to consider, well, planets smaller than Jupiter, another later study suggested that maybe that number could be even higher. There could be 100,000 times more rogue planets than stars. A pretty big range of estimates of how many rogue planets there are out there. And this is part of the problem, what we're looking at here is potential rogue planets. They're so difficult to observe, and the circumstance has a lot of ambiguity in it. So coming back to this recent study published in the journal Nature, it's easy to say at least 70, but we're not quite sure. It, it could be up to 170, and there's a lot of caveats that go into why that number is so widely spread. 
And one of the problems of using micro lensing really is that it's difficult to actually pin down and measure the mass of the object they detected. They can detect that there's been a change in brightness in the lens source star, and they know that the lens, the object that's moving in front of it, has distorted in some way, but actually estimating the mass of the object purely based on that brightness change is very difficult. Now, there's objects with masses that are really big, objects that are really massive, like 13 times the size or mass of Jupiter. If an object that big changed the brightness, that's probably not actually an exoplanet. That might be a dwarf star or some other type of stellar object that's causing the change in brightness, but not specifically a planet, because 13 times the mass of Jupiter is really big. So you've got to rule those ones out. So that's to rely on studying the planet's brightness to try and provide an upper limit for the number of rogue planets actually observed. Then they have to try and relate that somehow to the planets themselves. The older the planet, the longer it's been cooling down and thus reducing its brightness. Because any object that's been traveling through interstellar space on its own for a long time is probably cooling and cooling and cooling. So they use this fact and they use the knowledge about the region that they've discovered this in or passed through to analyze and estimate the masses for objects that are so using these pieces of information, they end up with an estimate of around somewhere between 70 and 170. A pretty wide spread, but still a pretty great way of observing something that you can't see, something that's not emitting any light, and something that is you know, kind of hard to find, something that is disappearing into the blackness of interstellar space pretty easily. Now the source data from this are observations from the European Space Organization, Southern Observatory, Very Large Telescope, the Visible Infrared Survey Telescope for Astronomy, VISTA, the VLT Survey Telescope, and a lot of other facilities located in Chile, along with other observatories across the Southern Hemisphere. And they took 20 years worth of data and analyzed this for just the tiniest of motions. And this is really what they have to do when using this micro-lensing technique. Of course, you can't observe the entire sky, so they narrowed down where they were looking at to a small region, a star-forming region, in an area closest to our sun in the upper Scorpius belt in the Ophicus constellation. And this region of space is what they observed, and in that region alone they found this potentially 70 to 170 dwarf. So now that these so now that these rogue planets have been identified and tagged, the European Space Agency hopes to use other telescopes like the ELT, the extremely large telescope that's under construction in Chile, the Atacama Desert. They hope to use this and other missions, like we talked about earlier from NASA, to pinpoint and locate more of these rogue planets and help identify what forms them. There's a lot of questions around these rogue planets. How do they form? What different mechanisms can cause them to form? Are they ejected from a solar system or are they planets that formed on their own in a, basically a collection of dust? Or perhaps are they from the failed formation of stars? And then there's also other hypotheses that need to be investigated in these rogue planets, like their ability to retain heat and warmth and whether or not they would freeze over, or thanks to their own tectonic nature and the fact there's no star burning off their atmosphere. Could they possibly even contain heat over a long period as they journey through the cosmos? If that's the case, there's many interesting things we could learn. So rogue planets pose an interesting question for scientists. They would be a fascinating thing to study, but they're incredibly hard to detect. So new ways of detecting and analysing them and pinpointing some of them in our own Milky Way galaxy gives researchers an aim to dive into in more detail. This paper was published in the journal Nature Astronomy, outlining a recent large discovery of rogue planets relatively close to home.
Sure, we can use rogue planets to gain insights into the formation of planets in general by studying the way and where they might be formed. But if we want to go to study the formation of planets in our own solar system, we don't have to be looking for these faint objects deep in interstellar space. We can instead be looking at objects that have fallen to Earth and specifically inside these objects. Because there is tiny beads of glass that lurk inside meteorites, and the composition of these meteorites and this glass inside them can tell us an awful lot about the formation of planets inside our solar system. And that's exactly what researchers like Nicole Zaykney and Timo Hopp, postgraduate researchers from University of Chicago, have published in the journal Science Advances, along with a large number of their teammates in the Delphus Origins Lab at U Chicago. This study focused on inside of a meteorite because inside them you can have these things called chondrules. These are these tiny bead fragments of glass deep inside the meteorite itself and scientists believe that these bits of rock are actually left over from the debris that were floating around billions of years ago around our sun and these would eventually coalesce into objects inside our solar system. Large asteroids, dwarf planets and even the major planets. So, these meteorites, these little chunks of rock, can tell us an awful lot about the things that would have joined together to form what we now know as planets. And this is important as well because whilst these objects have a certain formation and structure and chemical composition, it's very different to that found on Earth. And that's because of the volcanic and tectonic motion that all rocks on Earth are faced with. This constant churn of uplift and then degradation, pressure squeezing heat that all rocks on Earth face means that the composition of the rocks on Earth changes a lot from its initial state. There was so much squeezing heat and pressure and changes that compared to a rock that has fallen from space, well, that hasn't undergone any of those changes. Sure, it's undergone a pretty violent re-entry into Earth, but that's on the exterior. On the inside, you can look at some th rock structure, crystalline structure and formation, even elemental structure, that is more like the early days of rock seen in the solar system. Now, to do this, you have to peer into detail and look at the chemical composition. Now, not just which elements are present, but of course, which isotope. And what's interesting is that by studying the proportions of isotopes found in each type of these rocks, you can understand what was happening when that rock was formed, how hot it was, whether it cooled slowly or fastly, was flash frozen, if there were other elements around for it to interact with. And from this, you can actually do some detective work and piece together the journey of this rock. So the researchers Nicole Nee, Timo Hopp and others took really precise measurements of the concentrations and isotopes found of particularly two elements that were depleted in the meteorites. They looked at potassium and rubidium and that means they could really focus on the journey of these particular elements inside the rock over time. Now from this they could have pieced together what was happening as the chondrules, these glassy beads, were formed. The elements would have been part of a clump of dust that got hot enough to melt, form the glass, and then vaporize. Then as the material cooled, some of that vapor actually then coalesced back into chondrules again. And from actually the concentrations, they can tell how fast it cooled, because it was fast enough that not everything condensed. 
That means it must have been dropping at a rate of temperature change of around 500 degrees Celsius per hour, as Professor of Geophysical Science at the Chicago Nicholas Stalfas points out. And that's really fast. So based on this, scientists can think about what kind of event could have caused this chondral to heat up, vaporize, and then cool really, really rapidly. Come up with different kinds of extreme heating and cooling scenarios. And one scenario that fits would be the massive shock waves of passing through the early type of nebula. When large planetary bodies move through a nebula, they can create these shock waves, this motion inside the nebula itself. They would have heated and then cooled the dust as it was passing through it. Of course, there's other scenarios, lightning or collision between rocks, that could have caused these controls to form. But shock waves in motion through a nebula is a pretty good explanation because it gives you that rapid heating and cooling effect. And by studying these particular two elements, potassium and rubidium, scientists can get a good insight into one of the big mysteries here on Earth is that these are relatively or moderately volatile elements. But we don't actually have as much of them on Earth as you really would expect based on their chemical number. Like they're, they're relatively simple things. We should have a lot of them. And looking at the formation of the solar system, we should have seen more of these elements present, but we don't. And perhaps scenarios like this, this rapid heating and cooling, is part of what changed and meant that we didn't have as much of this in the form that we expect here on Earth. So of course, there are many other processes that could have been involved in forming these control, these glassy beads. But the scenario described above and the measurements that they've done to try and confirm this gives us a pretty good insight into at least one of the scenarios that was possibly happening in the early formation of our solar system. Rapid changes of temperature, fusing and then forming and then cooling off again, tiny beads of glass, helping to form the earliest meteorites, the building blocks of planets that would have then formed our very own planet that we live on here on Earth. Interesting paper published in the journal Science Adventures with lead author Nicole Nee. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. From the hard work of scientists to detect rogue planets as they journey across interstellar space, to understanding our own solar system's formation by studying glass in meteorites. This week we found out about planet formation. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.